All right, before we get started with today's episode, I want to share something with you. I have a training starting January 4th on Mondays for six weeks for only $200. This is an incredible deal. Spirit has actually made me offer this. So that is why I'm here telling you about it. The program is called Align, and it is going to kick you in the pants. You are going to release those limiting beliefs, conquer those fears, and I am going to help you do it. You're going to be able to ask questions because this is going to be live. Each class is going to have a healing in it for you. For more information, go to my website, Stark Transformation, and click the Energy and Mindset tab at the top. I hope to see you January 4th at my Energy and Mindset training called Align. Make 2021 your year. An ironic media production. Visit us at ironickmedia.com. Today on the podcast, I have Brooke Grove, and today is her rebirthing day. Brooke was invited to be a guest on the podcast because she had an NDE, and her NDE is so amazing, and the fact that she survived it is even more amazing. Brooke shares how she came back with these amazing gifts that she now uses to help people to heal. In this mind-blowing episode, you will hear about these amazing gifts. So without further ado... Here is Brooke Grove. Welcome to the Affiliate Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stark. In this podcast, I'll be sharing messages of hope, healing, and transformation. I'll teach you how to shift your mindset, conquer your fears, and become the best version of you. You'll get to witness healings as well as hear from my mentors, teachers, and about the extraordinary journey I've been on for the last 14 years. My connection with energy is so strong and I can't wait to share it with you. Let's get started. All right, today on the podcast, I have Brooke Grove and I am so excited to talk to you. First of all, your energy just is amazing. I was looking at your Facebook and your website and just the way that you write is just so beautiful and you can just feel the energy and the words have such impact, the way that you present them. In fact, on your Facebook, you said that embodiment is the perpetual blast of neurological energy now and it's irradiating the universe as consciousness. I've never heard embodiment put like that, but like that is what embodiment is like you don't realize I mean I guess I've done a lot of this work where I realize the power of the brain in creating the energy of the body and then bringing it to bringing things to you but also sending out information so I love that and you have so many wonderful degrees in healing modalities most importantly I mean the reason why we got connected was because you had a near-death experience so we're going to be talking about that today Anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Today is your rebirth. I feel so honored to be speaking to you on your day of rebirth. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy. I'm honored to be here. So tell us when you had your NDE. It was 10 years ago on December 6, 2010. And I woke up today, December 9th, 2010. Okay. Wow. So that's, that's a big anniversary, 10 years out. Wow. Yeah. So what happened? I had been suffering from complex autoimmunity all throughout graduate school. I had been a bit of an overachiever and was <laughs> taking, you know, 20 credits and doing dual masters. 
as I approached the thesis stage for the first one, I got really, really sick and nobody could put a finger on it. It was attacking the whole system. It wasn't just like a, you know, a one over. It was affecting my lungs and my joints and all sorts of different things. And so I was labeled with a type of vasculitis, which is inflammation coming from the heart. And that goes to the lungs and the kidneys. And so they were treating it as such. And the pain was exceptionally severe. I had to take steroids all the time, which made me put on a bunch of weight. And then I wasn't able to be as active between the pain and the weight. Mm. So I was really frustrated because I, I knew, I intuitively knew that that diagnosis didn't feel right, but I was going to the best hospitals. And I just kept saying that. So my family happens to be from the Washington, D.C. area, and John Hopkins is nearby. So I applied, and because of the severity of my case, I was actually offered to be seen quite soon. And so I fly over to Maryland, and I'm staying at their house. They are out at the time, and by the grace of God, they came home in time to find me. Mm-hmm. I had taken my medication as directed. However, at this point, the medications that they were giving me to control the pain, they all contained a little bit of Tylenol. And all of the doctors told me it was entirely safe to take it. However, what they didn't understand was that my liver was failing too. Because of the Mm. misdiagnosis, the liver had been missed. Mm. So what might be a benign amount of Tylenol to another became toxic. And when the liver failed, it took the compromised lungs and kidneys with it. So my family comes in and they find me wailing in the bed face down. I had already swollen up about 15 pounds because the liver starts to release bile. And so I was swollen and turning purple head to toe, yellow eyes, and you know, just screaming and wailing in immense pain. So I was immediately taken uh, to the local hospital. Unfortunately, they don't know the livers involved. They know that I'm in extreme pain. So what do they do? They give me morphine. Well, what does morphine do to the liver that's already failing? That was it. It knocked me out. I don't know that I was comatose at that time per se, because that's not when I recall exiting the body, but I know I was unconscious. So at that point, I'm flown to John Hopkins so that I can be with the doctors I came to be with, and I receive care from their ICU. It's from ICU that I remember departing the body. Holy moly. Yeah. I So I'm familiar with the Tylenol and the liver situation, and it depletes your glutathione and things like that. So once you were there at John Hopkins, what happened in ICU that you remember leaving your body? Well, to be frank, I've always been an intuitive and a lucid dreamer. So I thought I was having a dream at first, or I was looking down as I was coming up. And I was like, huh, this looks like an X-Files episode. They're all wearing hazmat suits. What's going on? Even though I was separate from my body, like it was my way of being, my way of consciousness, my personality even. And then all of a sudden I realized that's me, that's my body. And then there was like this like strange curiosity about wanting to see it. And then at the the same time, something was just like pulling me back. 
And the more that I felt that pull, the less I cared about what was going in that room. Hmm. So I just was transported then upward and upward and upward through the building, but then ultimately into what I deem all time and space when I then arrived in a very cosmic, ethereal, universe-like setting. Cool. I'm so excited to hear about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what was the first thing that happened once you got up there? Well, the first thing that happened, as for so many, was it was like blinded by the light of source, you know, and but it's like the most mystical blinding you can encounter. I felt and I, I say this all the time, because to describe what you feel over there, it's ineffable. There are no words. And so I felt and what I hold on to most dearly is that love, like it was all encompassing and it was holding me mm. and it was holding me in a way that even a newborn baby is rarely held, you know, because there's still that separation, even though it's the mother and the baby that they're, mm -hmm. they're separate. This was holding me as if I were part of it. Mm -hmm. And the love in knowing that and feeling that and, you know, it was unlike anything I've ever experienced in this realm before, after, even with my dearest beloveds. Mm -hmm. And so that light and that comfort was overwhelming and transcendent. And then at the same time, I had this like, I want to go towards that light but I want to come back. Like there was this like ebb and flow that was happening for me. And so I was then guided by three light beings whom I've come to know as angels. And they communicated through telepathy and inner knowing and light. Everything is light <laughs> and telepathy over there. And so I asked questions immediately, you know, like, oh, like, can I go to that? Can I go to source? And they were like, of course you can go. Basically, the feeling was that's your home. You're always mm. going to be welcome there. However, at the same time, one of my more blunt <laughs> angels let it be known that if I were to stay there, which was totally okay, I would have to reincarnate and come back and finish this work because it was part of a soul contract and it was important. And I did not want to come back. <laughs> I'll tell you straight up. I, I had been through so much trauma and so much pain that the idea of coming back with more karma, you know, and having to work through all of that was more terrifying than anything. And, and even there, it wasn't like I was scared. It was just this like knowing, no, I came here to do this now, not later. But they were very gentle with me. I mean, when you're comatose for three days, many near-death experiences happen in the blink of an eye or a few moments or someone's under 30 minutes. Three days over there feels like three years. And so I was getting downloads of information. They were showing me things about what was to come, what my mission was, hmm. and none of it made sense. Only now, 10 years later, as things unfold in the collective and as I've stepped into my power and my work, now it all makes sense. Hmm. But back then it was just like, 
what? (laughs) You know, but I received it. And at the same time, they're allowing me to really sit with this decision and sit with the light. I see these two lights that are unlike the angelics and they're unlike source. And I'm very puzzled by them. And so I ask if it's okay. And they're like, of course, you can go over and engage with them. But the lights would say nothing to me. They just shone really, 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 really brightly. One was this beautiful, beautiful indigo. And the other was this really earthy green. And I was so curious about them. But they said nothing to me. Yet I felt this deep attachment to them. And they were kind of off in the other direction. Sources out here. You know, it's kind of like journey over there to get to source fully. And then my guides are moving all over with me. And then there's these two lights. And once I had spent just a few, I don't know, I guess moments, it could have been days (laughs) (laughs) with those particular lights, I felt like this call back to the body, like there was something that I needed to do. They had made evident to me what my mission was per their opinion, there seemed to be some other stuff that was there that was resonant to my life. And I knew that I didn't want, as much as I wanted to stay because I'd never, ever felt love like that before, or the expansiveness or the freedom. I love to say that we are all fractals of source, but when you come into that space as a fractal, it's like a magnet when you're near that energy. And all of a sudden you realize, even as a tiny fractal, I have all of this light. I have all of this power. And it's given to me with love, nothing but love. And so it's hard to leave a space like that. (laughs) Yet I felt this all. And when I finally asked light beings, well, then how do I get back? They told me to follow the one light unlike any other. And my my orb, since I was in orb form as well, just shifted around. And there was this horrendous light that definitely was not cosmic or beautiful. (laughs) And so I followed it. And I mean, the minute I followed it, boom, catapulted back into the body, then terrified because I wake up, I have a pick line going to my brain, I'm strapped down to the bed and because of the swelling and the pick line, they have to keep me safe and I'm intubated. Oh, and here's the kicker. They declared me brain dead. So nobody thought I was going to communicate or wake up. So even though the nurse was checking my pupils with that horrendous flashlight, I was blinking like crazy trying to get her attention. And she was just thinking I was having, you know, a reaction like comatose patients do. Hmm. And so I sat in that ICU room for a few hours before I was able to get them to see that I was in there. Hmm. So it was so surreal to go from this beautiful divine space and then be like dropped Fighting. right back yeah. here Holy and moly. not able to talk. So wild. how did uh, <laughs> the nurse figure it out? Was it from the eye movement? It just continued and, and so therefore she realized or did you get some words out or... 
You know, what's funny is I psychology usually trying to end panic attacks, but you also know what it takes to induce them. So I just really started, you know, giving myself a panic attack because that would show on my vitals Hmm. and it worked. Wow. So the minute that they saw that I was really like wigging out, my heart rate was going bonkers, blah, blah, blah. At that point, they came to check me and I had moved my left arm enough that I was able to start like showing them like, hey, I'm I'm moving my arm, you know. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I remember she looked shocked and then they realized <laughs> she's in there. She's in there. But even then it took about, it took three days before they realized I didn't, I wasn't cognitively damaged because the intubator had been in so deep and the lungs had failed nearly completely. I couldn't be off an intubator right away. Hmm. So on the third day when they took it out, I immediately tried to talk. You can't talk after you've been intubated that long. So it was frustrating. So I ended up writing everything with the, I became ambidextrous and wrote everything with the hand I could, which was my left. Wow. Holy moly. So how did you recover from all of this? I mean, you had substantial damage. I did, but I also had the gift of the light. When I opened my eyes, even when I was trying to communicate with the nurses and all of that, I immediately noticed that I was seeing what I now know are auras, that I was seeing the energetic field of the person in addition to the auras. If there was disease that had medical intuition so I could see disease on folks. You know, this was a big one that was kind of hard to take at first. I was in ICU for so many weeks. Well, ICU, they're glass walls. So every time there's a code red or a code blue and someone transitions, you see it. And I mean, in my case, you literally see it. I would see the soul body actually come out of the person and go into the pillar of light as they transition. For someone trained as a clinical psychologist who would have formally, you know, put pathologized. the pathology, was, yeah. yeah, pathologized. I'm like, I would have put it into a, you know, nomenclature and diagnosed the person. Mm-hmm. So that's the hard part. And so I had to keep telling myself I'm oriented times four, person, place, time, situation. And every time I was, and I'm like, okay, I'm oriented times four. What is all the stuff I'm seeing? And I was fortunate because I had been working with a Taoist master just for meditation prior to this. And he has many, many gifts of the third eye. And so when I was doubting some of what was happening, I reached out to him and I said, there were three beings when I was unconscious. Can you describe them to me? And he immediately described exactly what I had seen. And so he told me, he's like, they're still with you. All you have to do is call on them in the hospital room. And that's what I did. That's when the healing really began. At night, when the nurses were only coming in periodically for checkups, I couldn't take any medication because of the severity of the organ failure and I couldn't sleep because it was hard to breathe still. So I spent my nights really learning how to, you know, utilize the light to create chi balls, to put them in certain places of the body. I called on the angelics to assist me. 
I asked the angelics to perform psychic surgeries and literal surgeries while I was sleeping. And they tell me there's no way I'll be out by Christmas. I'll be in a lower level of care if I'm lucky, but I'll spend New Year's and Valentine's in that hospital. And I was like, do not know me. (laughs) (laughs) I did everything I could against their grain. I had a friend come in that was a physical therapist and because they weren't going to send me to a PT for a month. And so I'm like, if you don't help me, I'm going to do it myself. You know this. (laughs) So (laughs) she helped me. And by the time they actually sent the physical therapist in, I could walk stairs and do all sorts of stuff. So I ended up that that so-called months and months, I ended up getting out on the 21st, just before Christmas. Wow. And at that point, my organs, my liver was about 50% healed at that point. My lungs were manageable with medication and the kidneys had spontaneous remission. Holy crap. So from (laughs) there on, I kept doing the work, kept working with the light, By, I'd say, March, I believe, I had complete remission for the liver. It was actually in the optimal range. The lungs still are sensitive insofar as I'm an asthmatic, so I get seasonal bouts, but they healed as well. And then by, I think it was a full year later of really working a healthy lifestyle and doing the energy work and the light work and all of that. But within a full year, I was in remission from rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, which had been the actual culprits. That's all amazing. Thank you. When you first woke up and you were seeing all those auras and getting the information, I know that information comes like an imprint, you know, it's kind of like you can't really say how you know it or why you know it, but you just kind of know it. So were you telling the nurses any of that information or no? So you didn't talk. Okay. They were already trying to deny medical error. So I didn't have uh, the most kind nursing staff because initially, rather than admit medical error, they tried to say I intentionally took too much. And so because of that, I did not have any trust in the, in the nursing staff. I did tell a dear friend and I actually, ironically, when I could write email, I wrote my dean, who was my, uh, for clinical psychology. And I told him, I said, I'm not crazy. This is really happening. And he told me straight up that if anyone else had told him that, he probably would say, really, go get checked out. <laughs> You're losing it. He goes, but I know you so well. And if you say this is happening, it's happening, you know? And he's like, just document it all. Use your research skills to, you know, work with this. And I was like, I'm on it. (laughs) Wow. So what did you think of when people would leave their bodies? What, you know, what is your feeling around death? I mean, that's got to be both like kind of liberating knowing where they're going, but then also feeling sad for the people who are here, becoming an empath, seeing auras. Like it's a lot of information, a lot of energy and all new, you know, like I being, this is probably one of the worst places to start learning about energy <laughs> because there's so much <laughs> and so fast. Yeah. And the hospitals like yeah. the worst. Place. Yeah. Lots of, you know, dead people walking around and, you know, lots of, yeah. lots of weird energy. Yeah. Very, very strange. 
in the hospital, I didn't like it because I was trying to recover and it was like happening all the time. Now that said, there were moments when it happened and I would be like, it's amazing, you know, just because I could see it. I came to really love that aspect of the gift in approximately 2012 when my own grandmother passed. She had had Alzheimer's for 12 years. Mm. And so we had lost her as we knew her about eight years prior when she really started to lose all cognition and memory and all of that. That said, on the day that she passed, I was able to make it back east and be with her from 7 in the morning till 7 p.m. when she transitioned. And my grandfather, who was married to her for 60-some years, he was holding on to her so tight, and I could see her soul body hovering over her physical body, and it wanted to leave. But because he was holding on so tight, she just, you know, kind of stood in that in-between. And it was very difficult for me to watch both for him and for her. Mm. As I realized it was her time to go and I could see the beam of light already forming in the room, like waiting. And so I asked my grandfather very delicately if he could just go take a walk. And he did. And then I went over and I grabbed her hand and I, I said to her immediately, I was like, it's okay. It's time to go. You can go. Like it looked right at me. She hadn't made eye contact in years. She looked right at me. There were like two tears that streamed down her face. And then the soul body pulled out. What was so beautiful about the soul body pulling out and going into the light is that she was smiling. Her energy was all lit up. I mean, her aura was beautiful. She knew she was going back to her maker. You could see it. It was the grandmother that I remembered prior to the disease. And, you know, the light transitioned her up and then I'm sure she got to be with the rest of our light family. So that was really magical. The hard part was five minutes later, I've got my grandfather and my uncle back in the room and I'm like happy crying because of what I've just experienced. And then I have to remember, okay, discernment, pull it back in. You can be happy for because she transitioned to the ultimate journey, our return to source. But you also have to hold space for the grief right. and the loss right. because that is very human and very much part of death. Right. And they can't see what you can see, you know? Yeah. I, I, I often have trouble with people who've who've lost somebody, you know, like with understanding and, and knowing that light is there and that's where they've gone and how beautiful that is. And, and yet then they still have this grief that they have to process and deal with. And it's so hard to be in that position, but so I feel also lucky, you know, because I, I do have a different relationship with death. Whew. So what would you say to people who are afraid to die? You know, I understand the, the fear of it insofar as Most people believe it's it's final, but from what I've experienced, it's anything but. It's really a return to our source, where we came from, and in my humble opinion, we go and come back from that many times, many different incarnations, many different lives. It's a place of peace. It's a place of love that's 
beyond words. So it's not death itself that's the and that's final and scary. Death is liberating. You're returning to freedom. You're returning to a space that is so expansive and loving and welcoming and familiar. There's nothing terrifying about that. I would say that it's more we need to reauthor the relationship the collective has with death insofar as death, like birth, is a transition. And there are ways that we can welcome death and celebrate death and honor death so that our grieving process isn't so severe because that's what's really what gets people about death is grief. Mm. And grief is awful. It's hard. It's unpredictable. But the reality is if we celebrate the life and if we know a death is coming and we can prepare for it and, you know, be in ceremony or honor it in some way, that gives you a much bigger shift in how you grieve and you can grieve in unison. You know, we have so many ceremonies and traditions regarding birth, Hmm. yet none regarding death in the populace. Yet if you look at the wisdom traditions of old, they all honored death. They all celebrated in beautiful ways. We've lost that. And instead it's become this big fearful thing. Well, just like birth, <laughs> it's part of life, man. You know, you're not gonna not gonna not die. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be this scary, scary, scary thing. Right. I mean, we all know it, it's gonna happen at some point. It's better probably to embrace it and not be afraid forever of it. So what were those, did you ever find out what those two light beings were that were not angels? Mm -hmm. I did when they chose to incarnate through me. (laughs) (laughs) So they're Um, your children. When my eldest decided to incarnate, I got a message from spirit three months before. I immediately was like, it's the indigo one. You know, I could like, and I didn't even know because I didn't see his aura color. And, but I could feel his energy and I was like, it, it was the indigo signature. He to this day has the most beautiful indigo baseline aura I've ever seen. Anyone that can read auras is always commenting on his. He's also one of the most highly intuitive empaths and just little crystal kids I've ever met. So he's really fun because he can, he can do some of the uh, work better than my, my older peers and healer friends. That's a leaf. It's another story. When he incarnated, I did get a message as well about a month before that he was coming in. I did not want another child. So I was like, what spirit? I just want one. And they're like, nope, this one's coming through. I could feel how fiery and strong that one was before he even came in. And what was interesting with him is that auras typically take a few years before they're really formed so that you know what the baseline color is. Leaf came out, they handed him to me, and I was like, oh my gosh, green all around him. You know, it's never changed. He is like stark, stark, stark green. And he's much more of my earth seed, like grounded kinesthetic baby, whereas Dechen would fly off into the clouds if I let him. 
<laughs> oh, that's funny. My son, I think, is like your second one. Very grounded, but also very intuitive. You know, so I, for a second, can you talk about those base colors if you have time? Because I've heard of them before and Donna Eden talks about them and she told me what mine were. Can you tell us more about that? Well, yeah. So a lot of times people will ask, what's my aura color? And most people have one predominant, but quite often they'll have a secondary color that accompanies them. Now, in addition to that, we see overlays, which can, they're usually trauma-informed, like if something significant's happened. So you might have, you know, for example, purple and yellow aura. Okay. But then there are spaces where there's a lot of red in certain chakra centers. And so that gives insight into, okay, those are areas that need to be cleared to revitalize those colors. And what's interesting is once the red overlay clears off, sometimes their baseline aura color shifts. Like some people Hmm. lose the yellow because the yellow was kind of like a protective, you know, defense mechanism. They don't need it anymore. The color does have much to do with who you are. Like, for example, violets tend to be very artistic, very sensitive. People you'll see in acting or artists or, you know, musicians, huge amount of them in that. Okay, someone that's green, like my son Leaf, they're much more oriented to the concrete, the analytical, the logical, a business type of person, no matter, not literal business, but that's just how they handle the world. And indigo, like my my eldest, they are the next level of the violet. They have all of those tendencies but they're even more enhanced. They tend to be very psychically aware. They are extremely sensitive. A lot of times you'll see like a yellow with them as well, because the yellow is like playfulness and like keeping you kid-like. So with violets and indigos, I see a lot of that. And that's basically because it helps mellow out the dramatic part of those other colors. (laughs) Makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, I mean, that's just the baseline. Like you'll see the base aura, but then for me, at least what's more informing than that, those colors is how their current energy is working with it. And do they have light teams on them, you know, light teams? Yeah. Like, I mean, because I see angelics all the time. If you work closely with your team and I'm doing a session with someone, I can see like, oh, look, they've got angels that just kind of flutter in certain areas. And these are smaller angels. I'm not talking about the archangels, Mm -hmm. but it's very beautiful because they're just like flashing orbs and the different colors are different types of angels. So that exists as well. So it can be a it can be a lot to see as far as the aura and then what's going on in all the minor chakras, the energy from that, and then the angelics and when I'm in session, power animals and ancestors and all sorts of fun folks like to come through. <laughs> so wow. it's 
fun. It's never dull. It's never dull. And I can definitely say as someone who spent 15 years in psychology and administered every psychological assessment, which took hours to many, many different types of people, what you can do with just seeing the energy and going into the quantum field and working with it, what you can accomplish in 120 minutes, it's mind-blowing compared to what you do in years of psychotherapy. And I get more from you know, a 30-minute diagnostic energy read than I ever did from those tests, which were exhaustive for the client and took days and then took days to score. So it's, it's, it's wild to think how much easier. And I know you know your energy worker as well. Definitely kind of irritating how people are so reliant on talk therapy and other things like that. And, and in, in so far as like, that's the only modality that's going to get them to the place of healing. And you're like, but you could explore this other way of doing it that can be very, very quick because it's energy-based. And, and sometimes I find that, you know, when I'm working with clients, they're not so sure what the problem is. And that can take a lot of time to unwind if you're just talking about it. But if you look at the energy, it's just right there. <laughs> it's, oh, or it tends to be. <laughs> and their higher self also has a very good awareness of what needs to be worked on when and how fast. Yeah. I, I love that you have that whole clinical background. That's amazing. And you have art therapy as one of your backgrounds now and marriage and family therapy, which I was very interested in doing, but then I steered away from that. We were talking about that prior to the uh, mm-hmm. call, how I missed the deadline by one day. And so I was like, well, I guess that's not my path. <laughs> it's been so amazing talking to you. You are a wealth of knowledge. Do you also see spirits who've crossed over? Like, do they join the... yeah. They- Well, once I opened the medicine space for the shamanic ceremony, I call in, you know, all teams of the highest light and resonance. So if there are ancestors of the light that would like to come forth from the the client's team, that's okay. But the way I seal the space and contain it, nothing that's not of the light may Mm. come through. So if they have any ancestors, I'll deal with ancestors cutting or courting and hooking and get rid of that. But I don't invite any, just any ancestors in. Right. Yeah. I, I have never done that either. It's kind of, uh, I feel like it's interrupting the flow of what's supposed to happen. So you have a new YouTube channel coming out in, in yes. January. It's going to be with all of your own personal content on it. And mm-hmm. that's exciting. And if one, somebody wants to work with you, I know you offer sessions. Where can they reach you? www.brook with an e grovehealing.com and you can just contact me through the site. I'm currently booking I believe late February early March, but I'm happy to chat with you. I also do 20 minute consults when I have the space to see if it's the right fit. So if you'd like to schedule one of those, please reach out. I'd love to chat. Awesome. Did you come up with the term spiritually transformative experience? No, I did not. That was one of my pioneers in NDE research, Yvonne, that okay. came up with that. Term. I thought that was rad. <laughs> yeah, cool she term. came up with it in, I believe, the late 70s. So to, to describe the full spectrum of experiences wherein NDEs are but one. Are but one? Is that 
Yeah, they're they're just one type of spiritually transformed. Oh, got you. Okay. There's many other mystical experiences. So, okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You shared so much and it was deeply moving. As you could tell, I was tearing up as you were talking. So thank thank you for sharing so deeply. And you are a beautiful light in this world and you are doing your work. And I have to ask, I mean, are you excited that you came back and you've gotten this far? Oh yeah. That's why I'm that's why I'm I'm doing the, I'm doing three interviews today. Actually, this is my one in the United States, so yay, get to start at home. Yeah, and then I'm doing one in Australia and one in New Zealand. Yes, I'm, I'm so grateful I'm home. I mean, it, in some of my interviews, if those of you check them out later, I talk a lot about how hard it was for me to reintegrate because of the level of gifts that I came back with and how they challenged who I was before. Mm. So I had to go through like a real ego death and a lot of dark nights of the soul. Mm. But now that I'm through those seven years of, for lack of better terms, hell, the past three have been just so beautiful and the community and the work and the people that are finding me through these kinds of discussions, like compared to what the populations I worked with in psychology, I feel like God's love and light with every single person I work with because I couldn't ask for better clients. And it's such a joy to actually live your passion and get, you know, compensated for it. So I'm super grateful for my NDE. I'm super grateful for, you know, the highs, the lows. And I'm grateful for everyone who takes the time to listen to this and for your time, Amy, and your light and Thank you for doing this and getting NDE messages out there. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you again for being on the show. You're so welcome. Have a beautiful day. You too. All content provided by Amy Stark and her guests on the Ophelia Podcast website or other platforms, including text, images, audio, or other formats, were created for informational purposes only. Always seek the advice of a physician or qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Amy Stark is not a doctor or a therapist. 